delighted to welcome five very eminent panellists tonight. Firstly, Juliet Samuel from The Telegraph will kick off. And I will just say one thing about Juliet's columns. One of the problems with the media's coverage of the Brexit negotiations, an awful lot of journalists based in London don't travel and talk to people in the EU and get that side of the story too. Well, Juliet's an exception. She was in Brussels recently talking to the EU negotiators. So he, she hears it from both sides of, of the negotiation, which is why I always read her columns. Juliet, over to you. Do give us a, a, an overview. How does it look from your own point of view? So I think it's safe to say that the, the point we're starting from right now is that the negotiations are not going that well. Um, and uh, we're at the point where the EU uh, is going to decide soon whether to progress talks onto the next stage and talk about a trade deal or whether that will be delayed until Christmas or possibly further. And, um, and it's very clear that that is a political decision. Uh, the EU is, is framing this as a, a legal decision and a legal framework. But in fact, um, we all know that this is a political procedure. So the EU needs to feel that it has gotten some sort of PR uh, victory that will enable it to say that there has been sufficient progress. Because we all know that it's impossible to actually sort out the issues like the Northern Irish border before there will be a final deal which determines what our trading relationship will be. Uh, and, and Britain has basically decided to go along with this ordering, rightly in my view, in order to avoid a lot of arguing about procedure. But um, where I'm going to start is basically with what the government has done badly or well so far in the negotiations and then uh, what, what it should do going forward. So I'll start with, what, with the bad news, um, which I'm afraid is a slightly longer list than the good the good news. Uh, and the first thing that I think um, comes across, particularly when you go to Brussels and talk to people about what it is the UK is trying to achieve, is that there's been a complete lack of discipline on the UK side in terms of the message that is getting across. You go to meetings with people in Brussels, even people quite well disposed towards the UK, and they say, I just don't understand what the UK wants. I just don't know what the end game is here. And so um, every time there is a, 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 new, uh, a new source of, of ideas from the cabinet, which has not been cleared, which does not seem to fit into a strategy, that adds to this sense of confusion and a sense that the UK doesn't know what it's doing, which is damaging because it, it leads uh, EU countries to think that there, there isn't a lot to be gained from cooperating with us. Um, and as part of that, the other thing that we've done wrong is that we have indulged in quite a lot of insulting rhetoric. Now, over here, comparing the EU to the Nazis might not seem so bad, or at least it doesn't hit home in the way it does over there. But in Germany, this is deeply felt. The EU is a huge part of German identity. It, it is, a, it is the, the way in which Germans feel proud of their country's impact on the world because they don't look to their history to feel proud. They look to the EU project. And so uh, for, for UK, senior UK politicians and others to consistently bring up analogies that are deeply insulting to German identity is definitely not helpful and creates a bad atmosphere. And what it does is that it sets up Brexit as, as a nationalist, isolationist event. 
And so, uh, and what this does is encourages the EU to take its normal playbook, which it did in Greece and which it tries to do whenever it's confronted with a government that it thinks is nationalist and doesn't buy into its particular version of, of what democracy should look like, which is that it it becomes determined to punish that government. And this is an unnecessary dynamic. And, um, and in addition, you have things like the Home Office sending deportation letters to people, which, uh, you know, which adds... Things like that have a huge impact in the EU because there are Italian and, and Spanish papers running features on you know, our citizens in the UK. And if one of those citizens receives a letter telling them to leave, you can imagine how that plays in the media and countries whose governments we want to cooperate with us. So, um, and then on a procedural level... Um, The government triggered the Article 50 process too soon, uh, in in, in two ways. So it was too soon in the sense that uh, we're now about um, six months into the Article 50 process, and Germany will not have a government until early next year. So if, as the UK wants, this is going to be a political discussion with the EU's, some of the EU's most powerful politicians, we've managed to put ourselves in a situation where we're negotiating before we actually know the, the makeup of the governments on the other side. Um, and it was also too early in the sense that the government did not seem prepared in having all of its technical details worked out, and in fact the cabinet agreeing to what its aims were. We entered the negotiation without a totally clear view of exactly what we wanted to get. And, uh, and it was only, over the, uh, only recently, only over the summer, that the cabinet was discussing what a transition arrangement should look like, and only recently that it's been discussing what we actually want the end state to look like. So that's what we have done wrong. Uh, what has the government done well? Well, it's managed not to fall apart. Um, uh, more, um, more substantively, it, I th- in my view, I think Theresa May and the government has correctly interpreted the Brexit vote. I think that the Lancaster House blueprint will prove resilient. I think there's absolutely no democratic way you could interpret the vote as one to stay in the single market, uh, probably not even stay in the customs union, because... The, you know, if, you, if you're voting to take democratic control of your laws, the idea that the UK could sit in an arrangement where all of our laws are made without any input from us, to me, is totally absurd in the long run. And we have now also finally got to a sensible position, which is that we need to have a transition uh, of about two years. That seems roughly the right length. And I also think the Florence speech got it right. Uh, it pandered to EU sensitivities by praising the EU project and, uh, and by making it clear that British policy is not that we want the EU to fall apart. And it tried to raise horizons to the long term, which is a very important thing. So what should we do now? Well, the first thing we should do is to continue that uh, cultural sensitivity shown in the Florence speech. And um, that's going to require a bit of love bombing to undo some of the, the, the mean rhetoric. Uh, so, and it, it actually costs us nothing to be nice. This isn't to say we should be a soft touch in the negotiations, but it doesn't hurt us not to say, you know, extremely inflammatory things about the EU's project. Uh, and we need to keep going with the message, which Theresa May outlined finally in the Florence speech, to, that Britain is a long-term, reliable, strategic partner for the EU. 
We need to explain over and over that Brexit does not mean that the UK has become an extreme, rogue nationalist state, that it's about democratic control of our laws and immigration. And we need to say that in a way that doesn't keep insulting the EU. The geopolitical reality is that the EU and Britain can and should cooperate and that there are many greater threats to trade and democracy than Brexit. So we need to shift horizons um, to, to that level, to a longer-term level. Secondly, we need to work out much more quickly what we want on a technical level. This is monstrously complex, but we need to know exactly what mechanism, legal mechanisms we want to be at work to enforce whatever agreement we have, what the substance of the agreement should be, um, what our red lines are on that and what our fallback positions are uh, and whether we want similar mechanisms for different industries or other ones. And we need to have that worked out on an incredibly detailed level. Um, and then we need to be also be firm and tough in negotiations, make it very clear that the amount of the Brexit bill is a hierarchy, that the better the deal we get, the more we might be prepared to pay. And we also need to step up preparations for a no-deal scenario because the government has talked a lot about no-deal, but there don't seem to be many visible signs that they're actually expanding our capacity to process customs and immigration, for example. And there are certain things we can't prepare for, like what legal basis our planes will take off on, but there are other things we can prepare for. And then the government essentially needs to get everyone in the cabinet on board and buying into a strategy and not going off message all of the time. And then it needs to sell that vision to the country because part of what's feeding the cabinet infighting is the sense that there's no vision for what the country will look like in future. And so if we at least have a vision that everyone can buy into, that will, uh, that will help with discipline.